Justin Trudeau is skating on the single largest civil liberties violation of Canadians in, I think, our lifetimes. Is anybody surprised? I'm definitely not. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. Completely unsurprising turn of events. Friday morning, Justice Paul Rouleau ruled that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was completely justified in dealing with the completely peaceful Freedom Convoy to Ottawa last February, so February 2022. For those of you who don't know, and I don't know how you couldn't, The Freedom Convoy was a movement spawned by a cross-border vaccine mandate for truckers, but it was joined by thousands of Canadians who saw this as the catalyst for change. They came by the thousands from all across the country to the nation's public square, Ottawa, to protest for an end to COVID restrictions. There were also satellite protests at border locations across the country, Coots, Alberta, Windsor, Ontario, uh, Emerson, Manitoba, and in British Columbia. Now, the protests, all of the protests were peaceful, unless you counted the violence against the demonstrators. They had eggs thrown at them. They were beaten by police. They were pepper sprayed. They were unlawfully detained, kidnapped, really, uh, snatched and grabbed and dropped off out of town by police. Um, And they had their bank accounts frozen by the prime minister who invoked martial law, suspending their civil liberties to dissipate what I think was the most effective opposition that Justin Trudeau had ever faced since taking office in 2015. He embarrassed them. And the use of that law, the Emergencies Act, martial law, was officially examined by the Public Order Emergency Commission, what we call the Trucker Commission here at Rebel News. And it was a fact-finding mission, a transparency mission, where they would lay bare the decision-making process and decide, did the bouncy castles, the boisterous street parties, the street cleanups, the feeding the homeless, and the sometimes errant horn honking in the nation's capital, did the inconvenience of having a weeks-long protest in the nation's capital amount to a national security issue akin to a Pearl Harbor, or a 9-11 level attack. And as it turns out, embarrassing Justin Trudeau is, according to Justice Paul Rouleau, as bad as 9-11. That's the decision he made. It's outlandish, it's wrong, but that's the decision he made. There was a point at which I knew the fix was in. I'll explain that later on in the interview with my guest tonight. My guest tonight is actually someone who sat there for six weeks and documented the Public Order Emergency Commission. And from that documentation came his new documentary. It's called Trudeau on Trial. And my guest tonight is my chief documentarian here at Rebel News and my good friend, Kian Simone. Take a listen to the interview we recorded yesterday afternoon. We're talking about why he made the new documentary and why he thinks that Justice Paul Rouleau ruled the way he did. Check it out. (laughs) 
So joining me now is our chief documentary filmmaker based in Calgary, but unfortunately from Toronto, Kian Simone. Kian, thanks for joining me. I wanted to have you on to, well, whenever you do something new, I want to have you on. But I want to talk to you specifically about your new documentary, Trudeau on Trial, which has had two sold out showings, uh, one in Edmonton, one in Calgary. This documents really the Public Order Emergency Commission and you spent six weeks in Ottawa away from your family doing this. I guess, first of all, why did you think it was so important for you to be there? Because you, you didn't necessarily have to be there there. You could have watched it from afar. But why was it so important to be, you know, within walking distance of that commission room? You know, my uh, my heart was broken when I didn't get the call to go to Ottawa. And I there's something in my heart was just like I, I knew I'd. I was the right guy to do something with this. I, I, you know, I, I, I was really sad one night and uh, I, I knew I needed to do something. And that was the same night that I got the call from Ezra saying, hey, I think there's something going on in Coots. And I'll always remember what Ezra said is that if a tree falls in the forest, is anybody there to hear it? If truckers go block the border in Coots, Alberta, without Kean Simone and Cindy Fazard, would anybody even know what happened? And... I knew from there that, um, you know, at just being somebody who who uh, can bear the the weight of uh, the pressure of that, I, I knew that um, I needed to follow the story till the very end. And the commission was that it was the the closure that um, Canadians needed, that uh, reporters needed um, to to the end of the story. So I wasn't going to sit home um, watching the commission online when when I knew that. It, someone needed to be there that could bear the weight of, um, like you said, being away from my family for six weeks. And at, at least I wasn't sleeping in a car this time. Yeah. Yeah. When you, and you know, it's, as I say it, I mean, when you think about what Tamara Leach continues to go through and some of the other people who are involved in the convoy who still fa- are in extreme legal jeopardy still, it's not too much to ask for us to go there to make sure that the fulsome story is told, because I think there is no other side of the story here. There's the mainstream media's version of this and the truth. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. You kind of made me uh, feel bad there for tuning my own. No, me too. I've been in a car <laughs> and I'm now remembering Tamara spent 48 days in jail. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, you know, as I was said in our documentary screening, we're, we're filming this on Tuesday morning and we had a documentary screening in Sherwood Park, Alberta on Monday night. And I spent not as definitely not as much time as you in Ottawa, but I did watch from afar and I was there for a little bit. And when I was there, I noticed that the journalists never left the media room. They stayed in their cloistered little hovel of a media room where all they did was talk to each other about the things that were happening in the commission room, but never actually went and sat in the commission room. And the commission room was where the news was happening. It was where the witnesses were, where you could see the anguish on the face of the witnesses. You could like, some of it was palpable. Um, You know, when you had uh, people who were talking about being snatched and grabbed and basically kidnapped by the police and taken out of town, you could you could hear their pain. You could you could almost reach out and touch the reasons why these people came to Ottawa, and yet the media never crossed the hall. 
but you guys were there. You guys were sitting in that place the whole time. You know, Sheila, you, uh, I've heard you say that a few times now at the shows and whenever we do interviews about this or when we talk in, uh, on our own. Um, I actually spent most of my time in that room with the media. I just want to put that out there because okay. uh, that, that's where I had to work. I couldn't work in the commission room. But I did hop over when um, yeah. the, the more notable uh, characters in the story um, were there. But you're right. And they, they, they chose to be in that media room and every morning they would walk in and it would be CBC first and CTV the next day. They'd bring in Timbits for each other and they'd walk around the room and give each other Timbits. And only once did Global News ask me if I wanted a Timbit. And I will remember that. Um, but that's what that's what it was. They're 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 all friends and they all just they 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 leave all the independent reporters out of it. Like Western Standard never got a Timbit either. Um, and I just kind of use that as an analogy of of what the you know, people share stories and people share like ideas and bounce stuff off each other. And that's all that they were doing in there. Um, and that's just from like a strict reporter angle of it, not necessarily the, the feelings kind. Because when Tamara Leach was um, uh, testifying, none of them got up and went in to go see what, what they were, what she was, ha- what she had to say. But when that, um, when that, when the man um, collapsed on, on, on the, right. the, the podium, um, I've never seen Glenn McGregor run so fast. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, this isn't like news. I was like, this is like a, a crisis, you know? Like, yeah, this wow. is ambulance chasing. Yeah. I was like, let's make sure this guy is okay before we run in and block the door so that people can't get in and out, which is what all they were, they were doing. And that just kind of shows the mentality of what they were there for is that they, they weren't there to, to hear people's stories and they were there to, um, get their own closure, which I'm sure we'll get into that they got, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into that. So as I said, we're recording this on Tuesday on Friday morning. We heard that Justin Trudeau, according to justice, Paul Rouleau was completely justified in invoking a wartime law as lawyer Brendan Miller puts it martial law in this country to deal with bounty castles, hot tubs, street parties, feeding the homeless and some errant honking now and then. And I think you're right when you say that that's exactly what the mainstream media wanted, but I don't think it is the right conclusion. And they're not really even talking about the point that um, Justice Rulo said it was uh, justified because of all the miscommunication and the the uh, the government incompetence of being able to deal with the situation. Like if you kind of if I when I take a step out of it and I think like okay, you have the most incompetent government Canada's ever had, um, and they have no idea what's going on. They're obviously scared, not about national security, but just about their image, and they have no idea what to do. The cops are um, trying to work with the protesters, but the Ottawa police won't, and there's a whole miscommunication there. And it's like okay, what the hell can we do? We can evoke the Emergencies Act and kind of just put a stop to this right now. And that's essentially what happened, um, taking a step back at looking, getting out of the politics of it. And and that's what Rulo said. You know what? What else were you going to do? Um, and it was weird that Justice Rulo never really uh, looked at the fact that, you know, maybe he should have. Maybe they should have talked to the protesters. Maybe there was a little bit of resolution that could have happened there. So they're both in the same mindset of, okay, what what can we do right now to end this? Because it's obviously going on uh, too too long, and, uh, and and that's just the kind of uh, what I got out of it is that um, they were looking at it from that point of view rather than the actual way of how they could have fixed something. Yeah, it it seems as though 
that the peaceful protesters in Ottawa who did their best to try to do everything right were forced to pay for the consequences of the government's incompetence. And it seems to me as though Justice Rulo ignored the fact that the blockades at Windsor had already been resolved. The blockades in Alberta had already been resolved. And there was an, a deal actively struck between the protesters and the city of Ottawa to move trucks. And it was already happening in good faith. And what stopped the movement of, of the trucks out of the downtown core was the invocation of the Emergencies Act because it caused the redeployment of police resources. So, you know, when they say, you know, we had we had to deal with this because we didn't have resources. No, you just needed time. Time would have resolved all of this. Yeah, and that's uh, I would put that in the uh, documentary um, of of how that was really just like the catalyst of uh, the insane things that were about to come. It was the catalyst of miscommunication. It was um, where OPP was um, talking about how. The Ottawa police, it was Chief Slowly and Interim Chief Bell. Um, I forgot his uh, position at the time while they made the announcement of how um, they were basically talking about how they were going to crack down on the protesters. And the OPP uh, was testifying at the Emergency Act saying, like, I, I don't know what the hell they were talking about. One, uh, why would we do that? Two, um, we couldn't do that. And three, um, we didn't want to do that. And it was just it was just that plan breaking apart because of the uh, federal government and the Ottawa police, not the Ontario Provincial Police, um, really was that the catalyst of what what came down to uh, what we saw, uh, the events of the horses and the, we all, we all know what happened. Yeah, you know, to their credit, the OPP were very level-headed. I forget the um, one member of the OPP, but he said he had real concerns that the Ottawa police wanted his people to participate in things that he was not sure were legal and he didn't want any involvement in it. He didn't want to hurt the protesters. He wanted a resolution and he thought maybe there was a police resolution or maybe there was a negotiated resolution, but he was not going to allow OPP members to participate in things that he thought would violate the civil liberties of Canadians like the aforementioned snatch and grabs. You know, it's a it's a pretty hot take, and I, I might get some uh, dirt for this, but I I really don't think the OPP did anything wrong um, from the very I, beginning. I thought they were their, calm and cool. Their intelligence as, um, apparatus was uh, it was very on on the point. It, it said exactly it it was it was a profit of to what was to come. They said uh, on January fourteenth that this protest is going to come there and it's going to stay there, and. Nobody read that report. On January 28th, they said, okay, you know, these are really cool people. We had a, a few, um, not cool people, these are really level-headed people. We had a few mishaps on the highways here, there. Um, but really, it was bystanders standing on the highway when they shouldn't be. Like, that's not a national security threat. Um, their intelligence apparatus throughout the entire thing with their Hendon reports, which was uh, basically um, just a report that was given to all uh, police agencies around of, of uh collecting all the information from online. And it's a, it's a very important report, I think, too. Um, Brendan Miller um, brought it up in the documentary as well about how, um, you know, when people say crazy things online, like you do have to kind of take that into effect and, and kind of put it together and as, uh, assess the threat, which is the police's job. Right. Um, and I think that they did that perfectly. And um, from what we know of the Hendon reports, they never blew it out of the water. They never uh, put anything in there that was... Uh, like obviously a lie and kind of made it seem like 
or obviously somebody extreme, some some grandma online. Uh, they never made that like blew that up to be right. uh, what the what the protest represented. So I really do hand it to the OPP. And like you said, during the commission, they were really cool, level headed. Um, none of them uh, attested to or or t- testified to a threat. Um, and they they were there basically to just call out the the federal government in their yeah. in their own ways without uh, making it political. Oh, likewise, calling out the uh, Ottawa police for the, for the absolute chaos uh, taking place on the ground. Now, uh, let's get into the documentary. Tell us the Coles Notes version of what the documentary is about. It's about the Public Order Commission, but you've broken it down into some pretty digestible chunks by chapter. Yeah, to, to, to first off answer the question, um, my job as a filmmaker is to ask a question. Um, and every good documentary is, is about asking a question. There's something called the, the complex of a documentary. There's a science to it. And just a quick rant, um, if you go watch the documentary Finding Neverland about Michael Jackson mm. um, molesting children, you will believe that Michael Jackson molested children. But if you go and watch the other documentary about how Michael Jackson didn't, um, molest children, you will be sick at the first documentary and you will now believe that he did not molest children. Uh, whether whichever is true, I, I, I didn't, I don't care. Um, it's about what the documentary is, is basically presenting and how good it's presenting it. Um, so as a filmmaker, when I was there, when I would hear the lawyers, uh, Keith Wilson, Eva Chipiuk and Brendan Miller talk about what their plan was, it was they had a checklist of uh, things that they wanted to basically check off of each uh, witness. And the first one and the most prominent one was, did the Emergencies Act meet the threshold of CSIS 2, uh, CSIS Act, Section 2 of the CSIS Act? Messed that one up. Um, and that basically is to say that there is a threat to national security, therefore there is an emergency, therefore we need every tool in the toolbox um, to deal with it. And the documentary basically goes through each aspect of the convoy um, to assess if there is a national security threat within that. But on top of that, it also breaks down the Emergencies Act and how it was used in every aspect of when it was invoked. Uh, so let's go to the first week of the commission, which was um, when we heard from Ottawa politicians, like local politicians, um, the bureaucrats, like the city manager, chief of staff, and uh, Ottawa residents, where um, we heard the famous reports of uh, I don't even remember what they call it. Phantom honking and phantom smells. Um, Microaggressions. (laughs) Microaggressions. So what they did is they went there and they talked about their feelings. and They talked about how, you know, I would be very mad if a protest came into my neighborhood and did that for three weeks. Like, rightly so, you have every right to be pissed off. Um, But that's not what the hearing is about. I don't know why they were there. Uh, to talk about how they still hear horns while they're trying to sleep, because that's not national security threat. Um, that does not equate the truckers to terrorists. And so the 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 first chapter is basically breaking down the fact that uh, this is kind of where we got the taste of it being kind of a show trial. Um, nobody actually believed it was a show trial at that point. Um, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I think it, in the vibe there was kind of like, okay, we uh, we as the collective, we as this kind of uh, right way of thinking, uh, we know that we won now because uh, there's nobody here in the in the presence of who lives in Ottawa can actually say that there were terrorists there. Um, and then moving into the second week is when we heard from the intelligence apparatus. Apparat- I'm not going to 
apparatus <laughs> um, with all the police forces and as well the commissioners of every police force where um, I guess the goal of Freedom Corp, which is the, uh, the conglomerate of the lawyers for the truckers, were there to basically ask every single person in law enforcement, was there a threat to one national security and was there even a threat of violence? And that, right. that like a threat of violence, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, violence is terrible, but it's not a huge deal. Like it's not a it's not a huge thing as as on scale towards what national security threat is. Yeah, we have laws to deal with violence against others, like assault, uttering threats. That's out there. Battery. You don't yeah. need extra tools to deal with those. And there weren't a lot of charges related to those things issued during the course of the convoy to begin with. Yeah, you know the the worst you're gonna get is uh, two protesters at night. You just had a few Bud Lights, and you know. <laughs> Punch one punches the other one in the face. Like that's not a national security threat. I don't even yeah. think that happened. No. And um, so that the documentary follows that kind of style throughout the weeks. And the um, you know my favorite week would be uh, week five when we kind of learned about the bank account seizing, and we heard from Brenda Lucky. Uh, we I, I kind of teased in uh, Krista Freeland because she kind of fits into that week. Um, but we also heard from Global Affairs, who I didn't even know existed until the. Uh, commission where we heard that they just they tried to justify the emergencies act because our flag was being misrepresented and because it was being flown all around the world as an act of rebellion or it was uh they put it as it was an act of uh lawlessness uh if the canadian flag was kind of equated to lawlessness um and i I remember i just want to tell a quick story about that i remember the first the first uh screening I was sitting beside uh, Uncle Hack from the Danger Cats, and we were watching that that scene of the when uh, Cindy, uh, don't remember her last name, Global Affairs said that um, the Canadian flag now means an act of rebellion against uh, vaccine mandates, and he screamed out, "He's like, you goddamn right, it does!" And everybody <laughs> cheered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was something else to see our flags flown in Holland. As the farmers revolted there was for the first time, instead of us being looked at as just nice lap dogs, we were the sign of resistance in the name of human rights out there. And, you know, you you often see American flags at protests, right? The Cubans flew it when they were revolting against their government. You you know, we saw it in Hong Kong. We saw the American flags um, as they fought as the CCP were taking the island back. And it was, uh, for me, a point of pride to see our flag flown at other human rights demonstrations. And it's funny that the federal government saw it as offensive um, because I guess they were the human rights violators in this case. But uh, the idea that because there's brand damage related to the flag, that that would constitute a national emergency? No. They heard the brand. They heard yeah. the flag. They like I, after the emergencies act, you know, I didn't even want to look at the flag. Like I was yeah. heartbroken about my own country. I remember um, before I went to Coots, um, I was driving around in Calgary and there was people flying Canadian flags like outside of a protest. It was like a Tuesday afternoon. People are going grocery shopping and they got their hockey stick with the Canadian flag. And it like it brings tears to your eyes when, um, you know, I would have never talked to that person before. And then now that when they get out of their car and I'm walking into co-op with them, I'd say, hey, how's it going, man? Like it, yeah. it brought people together. And when the after the Emergencies Act, it, it just kind of did something different. 
they they hurt it for us. They hurt the reputation within domestically of what the flag means. So, Kim, what happens next? What does this mean? Are we divided? Do does are we able to put this all behind us? Um, or are they like me? I knew the fix was in when I when Rulo wouldn't make rulings on documents that were being I to use my words and not the lawyers illegally um, redacted and given to the lawyers as the witness related to the documents was testifying. So there was no time for them to pre- to prepare when Rulo refused to rule on that sort of stuff until it was too late. I knew the fix was in. So I guess what happens next? Do we just continue on with our corrupt government? I guess we have to, but I guess what does this mean for the people? Hypothetically, what I want to happen next, and I'll st- start off on a, a good hopeful basis here. I'm not mad that Justice Rulo yeah. said it was justified. Um, and I'm not going to uh, be the, the black pill here and be like, oh, I, I knew it was going to happen. It was, I'm not surprised. I'm just, I'm not mad at it because I, yeah. I just know how the Laurentian elites think. And like I said before, it was all because of mismanagement, miscommunication and incompetence. We know they mismanage, we know they don't communicate, we know they're incompetent. And if that's your justification for invoking the Emergencies Act, fine. Like I, fine, like I'll just put my foot down, whatever. But you can make it right still by unredacting the legal opinion that uh, Justice Lametti gave uh, to Justin Trudeau. You can make it right by unredacting some of their notes of what they were talking about. So at least there is still transparency after so that we know why they had to do it. We like now we know that is because they're incompetent. Like let's see the notes about how incompetent that they were. Let's see that. And I think that that would heal some people that were heartbroken about this. Um, this, This ruling that even if it went unjustified, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. I think that we could really heal if we just get some of those documents that were were uh, unlawfully redacted. Yeah, especially when this was presented to us, the Public Order Emergency Commission was prevent, presented to us as a fact-finding effort in transparency. And at the very least, give us all the documents that's as transparent as I think we're ever going to get and let people decide for themselves I mean, I think a lot of people have already decided for themselves. Either they think honking is terrorism or they watch the commission and they live in reality and know that it wasn't. But let you cannot look at those documents and come to an ignorant or ill-informed decision. It's one thing to, you know, hear the tone and intonation of the witnesses. Maybe they meant to say it that way. Maybe they should have said it that way. But when you read the notes, it's something completely different. 100 percent. And to uh, kind of finish off on the um, the point there of, of what I want to happen and what I think could actually fix some of the situation here and uh, give more people more closure on, uh, as to what happened. Um, the recommendations that Justice Rouleau gave was to, as you as you said before, uh, make it easier to invoke. And I think that's like one of the scariest things that I've ever heard, um, because not only if let's say he didn't do that, they it's still setting a precedent for what uh, we can evoke a form of martial law over. And now that there's uh, easier to invoke, so let's say we're re- removing um, Section 2 of the CSIS Act as a threshold, 
uh, which d- I guess didn't matter anyway. Uh, right. But, but now it's they don't have to go through the whole uh, three IPG meetings and say, okay, how do we get around this? Can what's our plan when we uh, need to lie about this? They can just do it. Like yeah. they can just put push the the big red button that says nuclear on it and just invoke invoke it whenever they want. Um, and I, I'm not gonna uh, say, say that they're going to do that over small protests. I don't. Uh, Christine Anderson said that I give them too much credit when I say this. Um, I don't think that they'll do it again for a very long time because I don't think that they would uh, have that kind of bonfire of what that would do. Um, but I, I do think that there there are small repercussions that come out of um, the precedent that is set, and that trickles into Calgary on itself. And I I brought this up at the screening of how uh, it is now illegal to protest against Drag Queen Story Hour. Um, that's wrong. <laughs> and that's just yeah. plain wrong. It's against everything that I know, um, every right that I thought I had. Um, and I, so I think that just the mentality of how to deal with uh, quote unquote right wing protests, or you can just call them protests for civil liberties that um, have nothing to do with um, systemic racism. So anything other than that, uh, that that's how they're, they can deal with it now. And, and Justin Trudeau set that precedent. Um, so emergencies act or no emergencies act, it's it's the it's the small um, things that trickle down from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And for me, even if none of those recommendations are adopted, and I think they're going to be adopted whole cloth, including um, to monitor monitor social media for appropriate use. The government's going to tell me I can't make jokes on the internet. Okay, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Take me straight to jail. Um, But even if none of those are adopted, I think what happened last February has put a chill across Canadians because they see what happened to Tamara Leach. They see what happened to Tom Marazzo. They see what happened to so many people who had their bank accounts frozen. They couldn't make payroll. They couldn't pay their mortgage. They couldn't buy their groceries. And for what? Because they stood up peacefully to their government. It, you could... A lot of people, there are a lot of people who are who are willing to say, I wouldn't change a thing. Tamara Leach said that last night. I wouldn't change a thing. But there are a lot of people who are just, and, and who could blame them, say the price is just too high. And that is what invoking the Emergencies Act, I think it wasn't just to stop that protest. It was to stop any protest going forward. And I think, by and large, it could work. Uh, true North. Um recently put out a documentary about this and i think they ask a question that i never heard anybody ask before uh to the truckers um and that was what was it like on the drive home yeah it's, it's a, a fantastic it's a fantastic question and and it was heartbreaking um so like just imagine that like it it's sure one thing that's a loss that hey, they didn't drop the mandates right away i don't think anybody believed that they would um in the way that they wanted right that i know right. I know they won in some ways, and especially in Alberta. Um, Saskatchewan, they, they too. They definitely won. Saskatchewan, too. But I think that they could have went home with a smile on their face, even if nothing, no mandate, not a single thing dropped, because they united a country. They got everybody together. They they put everything aside, and there was millions of people around the country who, vaccinated or not, um, stood up, right? Like they, they Even if it's in their living room or whatever. Um, but because of what happened, that is where that sense of loss comes from. That yeah. sense of 
it's like grief. It's like grief. Like I grieve over it. Like it's like a you lost something. Yeah. I don't even and know that, how to put it. I'm not a very no. emotional person, but I think I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's sad. And I wish the truckers on that drive home had taken to heart Ezra's words when he said on when he was there speaking to the truckers that you won just by being here. Because they united a country and they were the single largest human rights demonstration, I think, in the nation's history, but at least in my lifetime. And they spawned a movement around the world of peaceful resistance. Those trucks and those flags went everywhere around the world across other continents. And um, again, that's why I think the crackdown had to be that hard on them from the federal government because they were the most effective opposition that Justin Trudeau had ever seen. I agree. I asked that question (laughs) way before. uh, uh, Sorry, I was just thinking of it. I asked that question. Um, to Keith, Eva, and Brendan. I only put Eva's answer in the documentary. I asked if they thought it was an inevitable for that crackdown to come. Because there were some um, people in Ottawa Police Service who said that it was inevitable, that there was no other way to kind of clear it. Um, which is funny because Ottawa Police is the one who kind of got in the way of the plan that they were going to have right. to clear it. Um, but Eva put it in just a really good way that uh, there was so many other instances across the country like even at windsor the the border blockade which kind of seemed to be like the big most pressing thing um being the most uh used border in all of the country between here and the united states um the province and the police like they went there and they talked to the protesters and the big 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 majority of them left and the crackdown that we saw there was for the few people who didn't leave and and that's unfortunate that um that crackdown was pretty uh brutal and and gross, but um, they they had a they had a meeting and they had a deal, and they, the 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 effect of of the crackdown was was minimalized so low um, because of that because they actually spoke to each other, um, and that's where they failed in in Ottawa is that even though the OPP tried, um, Ottawa police didn't want anything to do with it, and then when the Quebec police, the worst police in the country came and they, they didn't want to hear any of it and they were ready to go. They were ready to start stomping on people with their horse. Yeah. You know, the first week of the trucker commission uh, really reminded me that there are, you know, I give bureaucrats a hard time. I really do. I think you're overpaid and underworked, but, but uh, Steve Kenalakos, city manager. Yeah. With the city of Ottawa, I think the only person in the city of Ottawa who did a damn good job, he dealt fairly with the truckers. He dealt fairly with the lawyers. He did his best to liaise with the police who were seriously inept. He was dealing with a mayor that just really hated those truckers. And he was the most fair, level-headed, seemingly nonpartisan guy. Um, Exactly the kind of guy you want to work in the public sector. Um, He's rare. He's a unicorn in the public sector. I think the left-leaning politicians in Ottawa liked it. Yeah, of course. I think they, they love victimhood. It. And yep. Stephen Kanellakos, um, Steve K, because I—that's mm-hmm. what everybody calls him. I can't do his last name properly. I think that guy just wanted to go home to his family, and he's like, "Yeah, here's what's happening. This, 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 and this, and this. Here's what I have to talk to." I'm clocking out of five. Everybody uh, has got it all sorted now. I did my job. 
And then when he testified, he, you know, he, he was even when it made uh, sometimes if it made the truckers or the or the lawyers kind of look like um, not bad, but just like not as presented. Like he had no issue doing that, but he also had no issue calling out the mayor and, and the police. Like he just, like I said, he he just wanted to testify there too and go home. Yep, straight shooter he that guy. He was getting, right uh, over your folks. shoulder, by the way. He was right was over he? your shoulder as weird. we were talking about. Yeah, it was weird. Kian, uh, <laughs> I know you're busy. Um, you're working today. I'm working today. Um, tell us where people can find your documentary, Trudeau on Trial. There's a couple of different ways. Um, so let us know. So first off, if you go to trudeauontrial.com, there, this will be out tomorrow, Wednesday. So the full documentary will actually already be out uh, for free. Um, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. our time. So, yeah, trudeauontrial.com. By the time you're watching this, head to that website and you can yep. watch it chapters. Um, and that way, I made it that way just so people can digest all the information um, in a timely way. Uh, and then if you want to watch it in full, you can go to our Rebel News Plus, which is also in trudeauontrial.com. You can sign up there. I believe it takes you to the next website. Um, and I just suggest signing up there anyway. I think you already have if you're watching this. Um, but if there's a if this comes out for free, um, that's the best place to do it. Um, I highly suggest uh, watching it in full because uh, it's just such a great experience. Um, just the way that it flows, I'm tooting my own horn here, but it it uh, I, I think people will really enjoy watching it in full. Um, yeah, you're missing, you're missing the in-person showing on March eighth. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're showing it in person in Edmonton on March 8th at Church in the Vine, my favorite church. I don't know yeah. if I'm allowed to say that, but um saying it anyway, Church in the Vine. And uh, it's going to be great. It's $12 tickets. Uh, it's the family-friendly version. I'm going to go through the documentary and cut out all the F-bombs so uh, people can bring their uh, kids yes. if they so wish. Um, and you get a pop and pop. maybe a, maybe yes. a snack. A pop and a snack of some kind. I'm not making popcorn for three hours, though. It'll be, <laughs> be some kind of other snack. Uh, but uh, refreshment and a snack are included in your ticket. And yeah, we love Church in the Vine. They stood up to the Alberta government during the times of COVID and got an $80,000 fine for their troubles. But they believe in free speech and free expression and free assembly. And they're always so generous with their facility with us when we show our documentary. So I look forward to seeing everybody there. If you go to TrudeauOnTrial.com, you can get your tickets, but don't hesitate because they go fast. Everybody always waits and says hymns and haws about buying tickets and then they're sold out, which was what happened last night. I'm very excited. Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I think also at our documentary, are we going to have the lawyers there? Yes, Keith and Eva are going to be there. Uh, Keith Wilson and Eva Chipiak. Um I'm maybe drop a little surprise. I think Brendan Miller is back in Alberta for then. And uh, I'm going to send him an invite to come too. Great. So we'll have yeah. a Q&A with the lawyers afterwards and the filmmaker. And I'll sort of be moderating it. I'll do my best to shut up and not monopolize the microphone. Uh, Kian, thanks so much for making this documentary, taking the time away from your family and your dog and sitting in the horrible hellscape of Ottawa. For that long, listening to bureaucrats and politicians lie about good people, um, it's emotionally taxing. I was only there for a couple of days, and I was like, my soul has left my body. I'm somewhere else right now. Um, so thank you so much for doing that, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. 
thank you for having me on and i'm i'm glad i was uh able there to be there to document uh this historic event and uh just a quick side note uh it was the shawarma that made ottawa so bearable they have the best <laughs> shawarma <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'll i'll take submissions on that Ian, thanks so much let's get back to work thank you Well, friends, we've come to the letters portion of the show today, and I invite your viewer feedback for better (laughs) or for worse. Sometimes it's why I give out my email address. It's Sheila at rebelnews.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Put gun show letters in the subject line so I can find it or leave a comment on whatever platform you're watching us on. I prefer Rumble because they're less censorshipy um, than YouTube, but I do go poking around on YouTube from time to time too because there's like 1.6 million sets of eyeballs watching us over on YouTube and I don't want to abandon you even though YouTube's terrible. I don't think you people are. Anyway, today's letter is not actually on a gun show or even a video that I did. It's on an article that I wrote. I write quite a few articles throughout the course of the week here at Rebel News because I just don't have time to do a video on everything. And it was on how Justin Trudeau has recently expanded the role of the Associate Deputy Minister at Natural Resources Canada to include a role of making sure we never actually use our natural resources ever again in a sustainable way. Um, He's expanded the ADM position to be also the special advisor on decarbonization. And this is part of Justin Trudeau's quest for net zero and the just transition, which is anything but just, anything but fair. It's just unemployment. It's just inflation. It's just debt. It's just poverty. And it will just please Justin Trudeau's overlords at the World Economic Forum and at the United Nations. But it will leave us, well, largely destitute, while the rest of the world continues to develop their fossil fuel industries. The world needs more Canada and probably less Justin Trudeau. Anyways, my letter is from Roger on that article, and he writes, Sheila, thanks for your article. Since I was in the industrial combustion systems business and helped the head of Alberta Environment negotiate the emissions standards for Canada, this makes me sick. Looking at the picture of this woman, so the ADM, I can tell if I asked her where electricity came from, she would say the plug in the wall. She wouldn't understand how water gets to her house or process on waste leaving her house. What's the difference between organic maple syrup and regular maple syrup? That would be fun to hear her explanation. You know, so many of these people making these decisions have no idea how any of this stuff works. Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science does great work on this, where she points out that a lot of the people meddling in our energy systems and our electrical systems to make them more efficient uh, and more green have no idea how the electrical system works, how electricity marketing works, um, and the nuts and bolts of electricity, how for every green energy project, you actually need fossil fuel backup, or you're going to have blackouts like Texas did when they got hit with an ice storm. Anyways, let's keep going. How is drywall manufactured? Shingles, fiberglass insulation, canola crushing, food manufacturing doesn't just appear on the grocery shelf. Why do all of her clothes have synthetics in them? Why does the potash industry use ultra-low 
nitrous oxide burners and not for nitrous oxide emissions, but for particulate emissions. What are all the uses of magnesium oxide for pollution control? It's a tragedy of what ignorant teachers promote in public schools. Keep up the great work. Governments are completely out of control. Roger. From just south of Calgary. Roger, you're right. I get, you're right. Now, I don't know what this new special advisor on decarbonization knows or doesn't know, but I do know that the decision makers in all of these things to get us off coal here in Alberta or to ban plastics or to push for net zero in car sales by 2035, these people have no idea the strain they are about to put on an electricity grid that is not prepared to have millions and millions of cars plugged in. We are going to be washing our clothes on a rock by the river because there is not going to be enough electricity to run our washers and dryers when we need clean clothes. That's where we're going to end up here. Anyway, on that dire note, <laughs> thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks, everybody who works behind the scenes for the show together, including my producer, the long-suffering Jesse. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs>